Did you know that Night of the Living Dead was based on a true story? It was experimental army chemicals that seeped into the ground in Pittsburgh and caused a zombie horde to rise from the grave. At least that's what medical supply warehouse foreman Frank tells new employee Freddy. He even shows Freddy the barrels containing the poisoned corpses that were shipped to the wrong place. But Frank accidentally punctures a barrel, unleashing the toxic gas into Louisville and reanimating the dead once again in the 1985 horror comedy, The Return of the Living Dead. I'm Connor Izagari. And I'm Josh Allred. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to the 122nd episode of the Filmgasm podcast. Today we dig into a personal favorite of Josh's, the spiritual sequel to Romero's zombie masterpiece, 1985's The Return of the Living Dead which I would say has a following nearly as big as Romero's films these days. This was my first time with it. Uh, yeah. Why'd you pick this one, Josh? So in like the pantheon of movies that sum my personality up, Toxic Avenger is definitely in there. This one, Dawn of the Dead, those three are kind of a really good way to encapsulate my personality. Um, I'm, I'm really just, I'm all about laughing. I got to have fun with it. Um, I, I make jokes about, you know, the absurdity of life and that's how I deal with difficult situations. I have to be able to laugh, but I laugh at myself. If I can't, I'm, I'd probably go nuts. And these are movies that you can't help but have fun. And if you're trying to take them serious, then you're just barking up the wrong tree, especially in, in the case of Return of the Living Dead. That's true. I mean, this is, you know, it's a horror comedy. It's wacky as hell. Um, clearly made for fun and, you know, entertainment value. It's not, it's ridiculous, but it's entertaining. And uh, it is weird that Night of the Living Dead ended up splitting a branch almost into two different uh, franchises in a weird way. Uh, and we'll get into that, of course. So the origins of this film lie in the rights issues surrounding Night of the Living Dead. Uh, after George Romero and producer John Russo parted ways, Russo retained the rights to any titles featuring the words Living Dead, while Romero was free to continue with his own sequels that just featured the word Dead. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, so John Russo and George Romero were really the creative force that brought about Night of the Living Dead and the fact that that movie like is what it is I mean we're in February this is Black History Month um it it still to me shows us how far we haven't come in terms of race and racism and just, just the relationship that people have with one another I mean it, it's never explicitly stated in that movie. You can feel that tension. Um, and I mean, along with rights and things like that, the fact that George Romero and John Russo were so young and they didn't realize they had to protect the work, it ended up falling into the public domain and something that could have... Imagine if George Romero and John Russo would have had the rights to those to that movie and the 
the money that could have generated that. Like what George George Romero could have made his own movies off of the legacy of that film until he died. He would have never needed any outside help just because of what that movie did. I mean, it's groundbreaking. Um, after shortly after they made Night of the Living Dead, um, they kind of went their own ways. Um, they did, like you said, they kind of made the agreement that John Russo could go out and do whatever he wanted to with anything titled Living Dead. George Romero, even though he had taken a hiatus from uh, those kind of films in between um, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, there's actually a uh, Arrow put together a box set called Between Night and Dawn. And it is all um, Romero movies like The Crazies. Um, there's always Vanilla, um, Season of the Witch, um, there was also, I think Night Riders was in between there too, or somewhere, was somewhere in that in that vein. Martin, um, those kinds of movies were departures from, you know, what everybody knows George Romero to be. So, John Russo wrote the script, what he wrote for Return of the Living Dead, and he got together with this guy named Tom Fox, who. All he wanted to do was make movies. He had no experience in movies. I think he was like a, was a banker or some, something weird like that. Like he had lots of money to burn and he just wanted to get in the movie business. And I think this was like 79 or something like that. that they were kind of shopping this idea around and it took a little while. Lo and behold, um, Toby Hooper was attached to direct this movie. Um, didn't work out. He ended up going to England to shoot Life Force. Um, oddly enough, from a script written by the eventual director, Dan O'Bannon. Um, most people, unless you're a real, true um, student of the genre, might not know who Dan O'Bannon is and don't know his significance. But I mean, the guy wrote Alien. He wrote um, Dark Star, which was a John Carpenter movie, like one of his first movies, um, Dead and Buried, which is kind of a zombie movie, but not. It's it's such a weird, it's such a good, good movie. Um, if you haven't seen that, I I, I highly suggest you watch it. Um, it has some of the awkwardness and humor that this movie does, but it's played a little more straight, so you don't get like the the, the overt comedy in it. This Dan O'Bannon was brought in to quote-unquote polish the script and then they offered the job to him after Toby Hooper left and he was like the only way I'm doing this is if I'm directing and they're like okay but he had never made a movie before he had never directed a movie before this was his first job directing and the way he approached it was he wrote everything straight like he wrote this to be straight up scary the comedy and everything that comes out of it is from the performances and just the out-and-out -out absurdity of the situation. And we'll we'll get into it because it's some um, Abbott and Costello Three Stooges level comedy and this stuff. And I think it just it cuts just at the right moments to keep this like it's it's just like a good release valve just lets off the, the the terror for a little bit and you get a little bit of a laugh 
and then you just keep on going and it just ramps up crazier and crazier and easier, but you're still laughing by the end of this. Thing. I wonder why, I mean, you know, Russo and Romero had this whole thing. I wonder why it took so long for Russo to finally make good on that, on his side of it. I mean, cause 68 uh, to 85, I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a jump. I don't really know. I, I don't know if he was just trying to write uh, some more screenplays and things like that. Because from my understanding is I don't know that they they expected um, Russo and Romero, that is, um, the kind of, you know, response they, would, they, they got from Night of the Living Dead. I mean, it shook the earth. That movie, even even to this day, like, it's it's hard for somebody that you know is probably raised on the era of like digital movies and you know slick fast cuts and things like to watch Night of the Living Dead and like actually like get immersed in it. But it's still the the story, the the characters, that kind of thing. Barbara, yes, she's very very frustrating because she doesn't do jack shit. However, George Romero kind of got an opportunity to uh, revisit her with the remake that Savini made, which to me is one of the best remakes of a movie ever, hands down. I love 1990s Night of the Living Dead. It's amazing. I love it. So um, he kind of got a chance, uh, a, a second chance to revisit that character. And I think the Barbara in that starts out that way. But then by the end of it, she's kicking everybody's ass. So, you know, George Romero all, and, and that became kind of a thing. Like he he always had strong female characters after Night of the Living Dead, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, this is also Women in Horror Month, so kudos to that. Hail Barbara. What you said about people who kind of grow up in the digital age not really being able to, you know, understand or appreciate Night of the Living Dead the same way people in the 60s and 70s did, I don't know, because I, I saw it for the first time in 2017, and I was very immersed. I felt like it, it was freaky. I was very impressed with how far they were able to take it. And, yeah, it's just it's, it totally still holds up. I've never seen the Savini one, but it's been on my list for a long time. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen all the Romero ones except for Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead. So I would say... Diary of the Dead is like Night of the Living Dead 2.0. Okay. It kind of, it's supposed to be at that point in the uh, apocalypse, if you will, for lack of a better word. It's at the beginning of that whole process. Um, and I think it was Romero's way of kind of utilizing found footage and kind of revisiting that story but yeah. with a different set of characters and for a different era. Um, I don't think he intentionally started it out that way, but his, his zombie movies reflect the climate of the time that they're made in. Um, Dawn of the Dead, for me, still holds up. Um, Day of the Dead is probably my second favorite. Um, Land of the Dead was ahead of its time at the time. I mean, even though he was openly making, you know, mocking George Bush, um, it still holds true to this era, you know, the, the last president we had. 
So the guy was had his finger on the pulse of the of the culture, and I think to be able to use zombies and horror in a way to and I've, I've used this analogy before in writing about George Romero. Um, he holds a mirror up and he shows us what we, what we would do in, the, in those situations. What we would do when it all comes crumbling down. Who are we really at the end of the day? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was very ahead of his time. He knew exactly what he wanted to say with these movies. It was, he was making political statements with zombie movies, and that's really amazing. Um. My uncle actually named his dog Riley after Simon Baker's character in Land of the Dead. There you go. <laughs> and uh, Day Riley is my a good boy. Riley, yeah. Day is my favorite, personally. Uh, just, you know, Bub with the gun and Rhodes just getting ripped apart, screaming choke on him. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> so satisfying. Um, Absolutely. You... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love seeing a horrible villain get theirs. Um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake? Um, so I saw it in theater. I was like, what, it was 2004, so I was 21. I was in college, um, in film school. And I really, that was when my brain was starting to get um, rewired to watch and analyze movies. So that opening is one of the best openings to a movie in the 21st century, as far as a horror movie goes. Um, it throws down the gauntlet and lets you know that you're in for a wild-ass ride. Um, I also liked how, and, and I would have to revisit some of the special features to see if this was truly his intent, but a lot of those... Um, a lot of those shots with the camera attached to the car and stuff like that's very GTA style, like shooting. So, um, I mean, the, uh, the, the overheads when, um, Sarah Polly's character is trying to escape, all of that is just GTA looking stuff. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but fun fact, the helicopter that's flying through there at the, at that point, is supposed to be the WGON TV helicopter that Francine was flying in Gone with the Dead. So, ah, there you go. That's awesome. I love. I haven't seen the Dawn of the Dead remake since I was like twelve. I don't even. I remember certain moments, but I don't remember the overall narratives. That's one I'm going to have to revisit. Yeah, I mean, there are parts of it that I like. Um, it introduced me to Richard Cheese, so I can't. I can't be too upset about it. Um, Richard Cheese is a ridiculous and he, he's one of those things he, he shouldn't be as good as he is and have as much fun with what he does I love him it's a guilty pleasure of mine um, they're just I don't care so much for like his like Snyder's um, constant use of you know high speed filming so everything's in slow motion and all this other shit like it just i I, I feel like a director can have an impact with their style and put their, put their, for lack of a better word, footprint on something without taking you out of the movie that you're watching. I mean, George Romero did it and he wasn't flashy with his camera work or anything like that. You know, you're watching a George Romero movie based on what you're seeing. 
and the characters that you that you've got. Zack Snyder is like all about just having this crafted image in front of you and showing you keys that you can control. And I just I felt it was pretentious. You know, like you're treading on hallowed ground as far as I'm concerned, even trying to remake Dawn of the Dead. However, I will say James Gunn wrote the script and I can't I can't fault some of the writing in there. And the writing is great. James Gunn is an amazing screenwriter. Uh, also, by the way, a trauma alum. So thank you very much. Um, but yeah, like I just, I have to kind of watch it. And I'm just like, yeah, it's all right. And I've, and, and, and I got shit a lot. People are like, man, this movie's so good. It's so great. I'm like, no, fuck off. As far as I'm concerned, it is a poor attempt at trying to capture what George Romero did. So, sorry. Hot take, whatever you want to call it. Um, come at me, bro. Oh, you're not going to get any arguments here. This is, you know, I am not a fan of remakes overall. I find them lazy most of the time. And uh, Zack Snyder, I've been very vocal on this podcast about how much I just do not care for his work. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I hate when they remake, you know, my favorites. Like one time, there was one time that actually pulled it off and that was Fright Night. Uh, The Fright Night remake, way better than I expected. But you know, they did a little something new with it. It wasn't a shot for shot remake. So it can work, but most of the time you get like a psycho or the fog where it's just dog shit. <laughs> yeah. And I, okay. So I feel like if you're going to, if you're going to do it, it should either have some thread connecting you from the original work, whether it's like the writer or something like that, or you need to be brave enough to treat it like a cover song and just make it your own. Yeah. Um, like take a chance with it. Um, the fact that George Romero was like, had his hands on the 1990 version that Tom Savini directed, not to mention the Tom Savini connection, the guy that did so much special effects work and made his name by working with George Romero, those two working together. It is a brilliant, it's a brilliant movie. I love it. Um, and yeah, definitely check it out. Um, it's not you're not gonna you're not gonna be as satisfied i think as watching um night of the living dead but when you watch that one you're gonna be like okay cool mero mero did something else with this he you know he had a chance to actually like fully flesh out barbara barbara has the best arc in there um bill mosley is has a cameo as um her brother so you know johnny like come on can't go wrong Tony Todd, please. Damn. Tom Tom Tolles is Cooper. I mean, can't go wrong. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like fun. So back into Return of the Living Dead, uh, we talked about Dan O'Bannon off of the director's chair after he was brought in for a script polish. Toby Hooper backed out. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dan O'Bannon is the screenwriter behind Alien and also Dark Star, Blue Thunder, Total Recall, just to name a few. Um, life force life force he passed away in 09 at 63 years old from crohn's disease but he definitely left his mark on horror and uh, he's a guy that should be more well known i think yeah totally um he just everybody who talks about him talks about how brilliant of a screenwriter he is and that is a that is an art form in and of itself um 
I, I still have yet to crack it. So I, I could only hope that I could be you know, as prolific as somebody like Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to start getting my hands on reading actual scripts. Um, I have the, I think it's like one of the early drafts of Alien. So I, I, I want to read it. I haven't read it yet. I want to read it. I want to actually like take some time, like make some notes and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like Dan O'Bannon was really like, he was, he was a little bit of a overbearing in the production and kind of how he approached things. Um, but what came out of this movie go for it like like just keep letting him do his thing i, I, lo- I love this movie so much <laughs> uh let's talk a bit about the cast we have clue gallagher as bert the owner of unita medical supply gallagher has appeared in such films as the last picture show a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge tape heads and most recently once upon a time in hollywood as the bookstore owner <laughs> which is crazy and uh, he was like the fourth choice. They, they went to Leslie Nielsen. He wanted too much money. He offered it to somebody else. He passed. They offered it to somebody else. He died. And then they got Clue Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, I think he was in like some Westerns and stuff early on in his career. Um, his son, John, I don't know if you remember this show that was on HBO uh, called Project Greenlight that had uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon heading it up. Uh, his son, John, was a was a contestant on there and he wrote this movie called feast and that movie was the subject of one of the seasons of project Greenlight. and john got his dad clue to be in it and that movie is ridiculous a monster movie super gory it's like you just the fact that this movie exists is wonderful and the fact that it's, you know, a son directing his father is even better. So uh, definitely check it out. It's, it's a total party movie. Like, like, you should have friends over, beers, pizza, and, well, you should probably eat after you watch it if you're still hungry after that. But, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Good. Yeah, that's great. I love, you know, one of my favorite things about this show is getting to kind of discover new shit that I just had never heard of or just like completely passed me by. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll, I'll get to, to feast at some point. Oh, okay. So um, bringing up Clue Gulliger, um, he coming in late actually had some benefit to the performance. Um, they were rehearsing for like a couple of weeks prior to shooting. So all of the cast, everybody's clue were, you know, very involved with each other. They kind of had time to flesh out the characters, their relationships and all that stuff. And here comes Clue two weeks before shooting and everybody just treats him like, oh, you're the, you're the new guy. You're the outsider. All right. So <clears throat> also fun fact, Tom Matthews is a, very much a method actor. So like he really immersed in what he was doing. So I think the performance you see out of him in this movie is somebody just totally like diving into being this you know really kind of dumb kid who has no idea what he's getting himself into and is totally out of his depth entire time and 
doesn't realize the dumb shit that comes out of his mouth when he says some of the things that he says. So him and James Karen, the 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 relationship they have in this movie is wonderful. I love it so much. Oh yeah, they they're ridiculous. James Karen is Frank, the poor bastard who really starts all this. Uh, Karen appeared in such films as Poltergeist, Any Given Sunday, Mulholland Drive, and The Pursuit of Happiness. Hell of a resume. Um, he died in 2018 at 94 years old from cardiac arrest. But he is just outrageous in this movie. <laughs> He's so over the top. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is a documentary um, about this movie, like the production of it, and they talk all the cast and everything. And James Karen talks about how he is so happy to just be working so happy to just be doing what he's doing and that infected everybody else in the cast like his positivity and him being excited when things were really terrible and they're like shooting in the rain and all this stuff and he's just like hey guys we're getting paid to make a movie so like that optimism is wonderful but like that's how he plays frank frank is just like this overly optimistic guy and you're just like you're looking at him dude everything that is dead in your warehouse is moving what the fuck are you doing like get out of there run he's still just trying to you know like we 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 can talk about some of their jokes in a minute i'm just gonna keep going hell yeah hell yeah uh tom matthews plays freddy the new hire who becomes a zombie matthews appeared in such films as friday the 13th part six jason lives the Peacemaker and Return of the Living Dead 2 in a different role, which is just great. Uh, I, I didn't know he was method. That is insane. Just his commitment. I love when people put that level of commitment into a movie that just doesn't feel like anybody put any commitment into it. It's yeah, yeah, because I mean, it, it, it looks so effortless. You're just like, wow, like he's really doing like, like, no, dude, he totally just dove head first. That's amazing. Don Kalfa plays Ernie, the mortician. Kalfa has appeared in such films as 1941, Bugsy, Weekend at Bernie's, New York, New York, and Foul Play, just any a few. He died in 2016 at 76 years old from undisclosed reasons. And I looked into the trivia. Apparently, he's supposed to be a Nazi. <laughs> ha, okay, yes. So if you look at, if you look at some of the... Uh, the characteristics of him. The gun he's carrying is a fucking Luger. Yeah. It's a fucking Luger pistol. I noticed that um, one. Yeah. He's got, uh, it, he like bleached his hair. Um, like actually did it. You know, he's like coming up with a story about who he was. Um, the music that's playing when they introduce him is a uh, piece composed by a Nazi composer. So like just these little subtle things Hold on, I want to find out what it is. I wrote it down somewhere. Let me see if I can find it real quick. It's called Panzer Roland in Africa War by Norbert Schultz. That's what's playing in his Walkman when he's embalming a corpse is a freaking Nazi like tank charge. Oh my god. Why? Like it 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 never comes up in the movie. Why'd they put so much detail into making this guy a Nazi? Because that's like that's Dan O'Bannon, and I think that's him trusting the actors that he has, the the older actors that he has, 
in allowing them to like put these little bits in there. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you picked up on it. Clue Dooliger's name is Bert. His buddy's name is Ernie. Bert and Ernie. <laughs> How did I not see that? See? Oh my God. That's what I'm saying. Like just little, just little touches like that. Little touches like that. And then you see them bounce off each other. And you're just like, oh, shit, these fucking guys. Like, it's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, Beverly Randolph plays Tina, Freddie's girlfriend. And this is the most high-profile thing that she has appeared in. After this, she didn't act again until 2015 for the film No Solicitors. She's done a couple films since then. But, yeah, it was just a 30-year gap. And I don't know why. Sometimes people just grow out of it and get the bug again, I guess. Um, well, I mean, some people, some people just, they just never go for it again. I mean, that just, I think that also says something about how hard the business is. I mean, you look at somebody like Linda Blair, who true, pretty much, you know, skyrocketed to fame off of The Exorcist, and then now you you see interviews with her, and she like won't talk about certain things from back. Like it's, it's this is a rough business. Unfortunate. I mean, when you think about artsy fartsy people running around playing pretend, you don't think it's like could actually like physically and mentally damage people, but it does. It's all in the name of art. And also, you know, in the eighties, especially, you know, there's a lot of well, teenage girls to pick from. Frankly, I mean, it's oh not, yeah, nobody really stands out apart from like you know maybe Molly Ringwald and a couple other people, but it's a cutthroat business, especially for. I would say women, especially just it's, you got to do everything you can to stand out. And sometimes people, you know, experience it that one time and are like, that was a nightmare. I don't ever want to go through that shit again. And yeah, it just doesn't work out for some people. Some people, you know, their dreams turn sour and that's a shame. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm hearing her talk about it. Like she looks back on this fondly. Um, well, that's good. And really, and really, if you see her talk, you're like, holy crap, that is Tina. like, she wasn't she wasn't pretending at all like she was just being her genuine bubbly self and i mean she was she was definitely getting getting it in this movie i mean all the mud terrible things happened to her and she still had a smile on her face um that scene where she meets the tar man this is this gives you a little bit of insight into how daniel like really wanted to get the most out of his actors he didn't tell her about the the step and that it was actually the break oh my and god so she actually fell through and like that when you see her on the concrete she's like in pain she's really in pain but it wasn't done maliciously it was just that was what he wanted he wanted to get like genuine reactions she didn't meet the actor in the makeup until that moment, until that scene to get that genuine, like, so when they did that rack focus of her reacting to the tar man, that's pure, like, unfiltered, just shocked, dread, and fright in her face. I, I understand why Dan O'Bannon did that, but that's, that's fucked up. <laughs> and, oh my God. It is, it is, it is. And I, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, 
if I was in that position, I would probably find a way to make it safe for, you know, somebody taking a fall. But to try and get like a genuine response from somebody that, yeah, I can, I, I can understand the motivation behind it. For me, taken from trauma, I don't want to hurt anybody. Safety to people and property. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it crazy how far the industry's come when in the 80s you could just drop an actress through a flight of stairs and nobody cares? Yeah, or, you know, in the case of Kubrick and Shelley Duvall, just torture her the entire time, take after take after take after take. Yeah. <sighs> Good God. Some, some people use that as a mask to, you know, it's all for art. Like, really, you're just a sadistic fucker and you want to get what you want to get. You're not thinking of the person as a person you're just reading like it's okay. not fair no kubrick's work was amazing but he did that shit constantly yeah. he loved abusing everybody yeah Ugh. uh finally linnea quigley plays trash the exhibitionist who literally gets caught with her pants down uh she's appeared in such films as night of the demons silent night deadly night and a nightmare on elm street for the dream master among a lot of other things and she was thinking I watched this with my parents <laughs> and I was not expecting that. And I just had to be like, mm, that is hey, a very interesting floor there. You can, you can go back and tell your mom that that is not a real crotch. You guys were staring at it was a prosthetic. Just I read so. that. Like I read about yeah. all the detail they put into making sure the crotch was acceptable. <laughs> which, which you think about, is not decade appropriate. There were no scorched earth in those days. No, no, no. It's all about the bush. And Linnea Quigley is very, uh, very open about the process that she had to go through in order to do that. So, I mean, look, credit to her for going the extra mile and really like having no fear in, in, in doing that. I mean, I would have been able to stand up on a friggin', you know, a crypt or whatever you want to call it and shake money maker. Fake junk or no fake junk. I'm just, I don't think I would have had the bravery to do it. So, um, yeah, kudos, kudos to her. Yeah. Big kudos, big kudos. I just, yeah. You know, I've, I told I my dad's in town. So I told them, Hey, I got this movie. I got to watch for the show. And my dad's like, oh, that's a masterpiece. Let's watch that. And yes, then, I'm glad your dad's got such a good taste. <laughs> we watched it, and my my mom's like, what is this? And I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> this is uncharted territory. I don't know what to expect here. And, yeah, it was just, it was fun. <laughs> um, so, fun fact, Miguel, uh, Miguel Nunez, who um, plays... Isn't this character's name Spider? I think he was actually this. Like I think it was his first movie. He was homeless. He was straight up without a residence, and nobody else in the cast knew it. Wow! And that was something he uh, he let out during the documentary that I watched. And he was like, "Yeah, nobody knew." But he was homeless. Like he was genuinely like living on the streets when he got that movie. Um, shortly after that, he was in uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, I think. 
think it was part five, those damn enchiladas. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, he, I mean, he's been an actor for years. Um, so, yeah, there you go. I know this is going to really kind of probably hurt my horror street cred, but I immediately recognized him as the voodoo guy from Scooby-Doo. Well, I mean, it's probably going to ruin my cred, but I also watched Joanna Man, and he was in that, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, you know, I just, I'm going to admit stuff that may impact the listener's opinion of what I think of this movie. And the fact that I'm a big fan of 2002 Scooby-Doo might, might be that. Just fuck it. Hey, hey, <laughs> you know what? If you really got something to say, send us an email. Filmgasmgmail.com. Go for it. Hit us up on Twitter. You know, yeah. Hit me up on Twitter. I'm there. I'm not afraid. I'll engage you. Let's be friends. We've <laughs> I all will got... Yeah. I'll debate the merits of Scooby-Doo all day. That movie is entertaining, and Linda Cardellini and Sarah Michelle Gellar are both freaking hot in that movie. And as a kid, I was like, this is the best. So, no, yeah, no shame. <laughs> I mean, like I said before, we all have our heads, man. <laughs> I just bought a Blu-ray collection of both of those movies like two months ago. Beautiful. <laughs> um. Return of the Living Dead has an IMDb score of 7.3. Rotten Tomatoes score of 91%. Was not expecting that. Uh, it was an okay hit, grossing about 14 mil on a $4 million budget, and it spawned four sequels. Uh, so let's talk about this film. <laughs> so obviously, this is a longtime favorite of yours. This was my first time with this film. Uh, what a... What a weird zombie movie. Definitely ahead of its time in a lot of different ways. Um, it's the first time I ever, like, I guess this is the first time we ever saw fast zombies. I always assumed yes. that was 28 days later, but here we are with fast, intelligent, scheming zombies. That's right. Danny Boyle ripped off Dan O'Bannon. Go ahead and say it. <laughs> yeah, okay. But that was just, so odd. I wonder why that trend didn't continue. I mean, because I think like that didn't become mainstream till 28 days later, but here it is with zombies who are just, you know, swarming extra, extremely fast and also talking. That's something I've never seen before, talking zombies. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that just adds to its, uh, its slapstick cred. Like, you're not, you're not thinking that that's going to happen when you're seeing this. Yeah. And when when the first when the first zombie shows up, I think it's the uh, I think it's the yellow man, the the guy in the freezer, and yeah, like he's a straight up frozen popsicle. Like, how do you think he's gonna say anything? For starters, and then oh sure, he says the first thing on brains, and there's like what the fuck? Okay, fine, let's go. This this is this is the kind of movie we're watching. I'm all for it. I mean, um, the introduction to um, Freddie's Friends, there's a song by The Dam. It's one of my favorite punk bands of all time. And like that was like the moment, like when that shot hit, I was like, I'm in. This movie is for me. This is for me and my people. And I, I immediately fell in love. Like I could not 
I could not appreciate this movie more when it was like speaking directly to me. Fair enough. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I, uh, for me, it was the part where I'm like, all right, I know exactly what kind of movie this is. It's when the zombie gets on dispatch and is like, hello, dispatch, send more paramedics. (laughs) What the hell is this? This And then later, and then later another one, send more cops. Like, (laughs) Come on, dude. Um, funny enough, this movie also planted the seeds into the public consciousness that zombies only eat brains. Yeah. That's funny. I was, I've always wondered where that came from because every zombie movie I've seen, it's, it's flesh. They never eat brains. And here we are. Brains! <laughs> Finally, a question answer. very adamant about what Oh, and yeah. not only that, not only that, it's not just a throwaway. It actually has a purpose when the half zombie later on explains why they eat brains. And then you're like, wait a minute. Your brain produces endorphins. Endorphins make you feel good. So it, oh, it actually, like it, you could actually rationalize that. You can actually be like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll buy it. The whole concept that, like, when you die, you are just constantly in pain and can't do anything about it, that's fucking horrifying. I've never thought about that. Like, like death has always been kind of a peaceful, like, well, you know, I don't have to think about anything anymore. Now I'm thinking, like, when I die, it's just hell forever, constant rot <laughs> that I can constantly feel. Holy shit. That's a, the most nihilistic approach to death I've ever heard in a film. And yet you weren't thinking you were going to be contemplating existential thoughts such as that when you turned on a movie called Return of the Living Dead. Just mm-hmm. another just another towel mark as far as I'm concerned as to why this movie fucking rules. It makes you think about shit that you're just like, why would I even want to think about the pain of being dead? Come on. God. You could write, you know, an endless field of philosophical uh, essays about that shit and here it is in a 85 zombie comedy <laughs> exactly bonkers i love that this film is based off the idea that night of the living dead really happened and the gut and the government covered it up <laughs> yeah and see okay so um from what i understand and i got um russo's screenplay and i haven't had a chance to read it yet but from what i understand that was kind of like the uh, the framing of it is that the government was trying to cover this up. It was their fault that this happened. You know, the fact that um, in Night of the Living Dead, you hear that it might have been caused by a satellite, that this is why the dead are coming back. And you're like, now that's all bullshit. It was the government's fuck up because everybody knows the government, especially the one that was pre- the previous administration was in there always full of some inept motherfuckers who are just content to get paid and not actually do their job. And that's kind of like, it's kind of the running theme through the first three movies is the government and the military are totally out of their depth and are struggling to cover up their mistakes the entire time. Um, By the third one, they're actually like, oh, we know what we're doing. We're going to create super soldiers, blah, blah of course, biting off more than they can chew and it ends up biting them back. So, yeah, I mean, 
Freddie's first day, you know, he's getting walked around. Um, that is straight up one of the things I love about horror and comedy. It's all about the setup. The things that Frank is showing Freddie, five, ten minutes later, they're coming back to life and freaking the shit out of you. Um, the split dog always gets me. <laughs> always gets me. Every time, like I know it's coming, and then I just see him. I'm laughing my ass off. I'm just like, oh, they were walking by, and he's like, yeah, you see the split dog here. I started laughing when Frank freaked the fuck out and started beating it with a crutch. (laughs) (laughs) I liked, um, I liked when they were going through the skeletons, and he's like, you see that here? See PT right here? I think that stands for perfect D. I think somebody dies with a perfect set of choppers in their mouth. It's like, no, from skeleton farms in India. <laughs> like, it's just all these little gags. Those two going back and forth. It's just, it's perfect, like, straight guy and funny guy just playing off each other so well. That's why, like, I made the Abbott and Costello comparison earlier. It's like they're just playing off each other so, so well. So well. I, I think... Th- it made me laugh. I don't know if it made you laugh, but I'm curious. When they, when Frank and uh, Freddie wake up after the, the chemical went off and they are both just coughing so over the top. I thought that was so funny. There's like, oh, oh, like just so like ridiculously loud, aggressive coughing. Oh man, James, James Karen coughing the entire time is ridiculous. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like, it's almost like he's trying to convince himself that, you know, something is wrong, but he's also trying to be like, yeah, that wrong. I like how it's film is also, you know, a, a group of several different stories that eventually combine. I always like films like that. You've got Frank and Freddie in the warehouse. You got Freddie's friends looking to pick him up. You got the, the Colonel is briefly at the beginning and then you forget about him. And then he pops up again at the end. I was like, Oh yeah. I wonder where that went. Uh, the graveyard striptease is out of fucking nowhere and is just ridiculous. It's so unnecessary, but also at the same time, I feel like this movie would be incomplete without it. Yeah, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be as memorable. Um, but then again, like if you if you really pay attention to like how that scene starts and where it's going, everything is like setting it up everything is going through there and and setting it up and and you can see the relationships between them, like how suicide is the only one with car. He's bitching about it. He's like, the only reason why you guys fucking hang out with a fucking car, you know, and uh, trash and trash and him, the relationship they have, you know, and he's like, you know, fuck you guys. Like one of my favorite lines in this whole movie is fucking think it's a fucking costume. It's a fucking way of life. And it's like, Oh my God, like, A, I knew guys like that. B, I, I almost like fully drank the Kool-Aid on that when I was starting to get immersed into punk rock and, and the whole lifestyle of it. Then you listen to um, bands like Bad Religion and Dead Kennedys and stuff, and you're like, okay, that's, that's just like one part of it. You know, more punk is way more about what's in your head how you see the world and how you um, how you how you come at it and your your approach to things. It's way more about your mindset than it 
ever is about what you're wearing. Um, Because if you think about it, uh, a movement that is based on thinking for yourself, being an individual and liking what you like and defending what you like, you know, standing up to hypocrisy and bullshit, but yet everybody wears the same thing. You find out that like, there's a lot of, you know, hypocrisy in that and it's just funny and you're like wait a minute whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah you can only be a non-conformist be... if you dress like us and talk like us yeah exactly exactly <laughs> that reminds me of the goth kids on south park conformist. <laughs> oh, it's just like yeah exactly um but i love suicide like i like he i i wish he would have hung around a little bit longer really wish he would have hung, hung around a little bit longer um but um when trash is getting up on there and she starts dancing around you hear um, one of the other guys is like, he's the mod of all of them. Um, he's like, Oh, trash is taking off her clothes again. And she's like little bits like that. You're like, wait a minute. This is not the first time she's done this. I think she gets naked around them a lot. It's yeah, it's crazy. Um, it really does set up everything you need to know about all these guys. They have a very eclectic group. I think that's funny. They've got like a punk rock guy. They've got a nerd. They're just hanging out. And it's, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but I don't care. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it's okay. So kind of give you a little breakdown. Okay. So like you have like punk kids who are represented more by like suicide and trash direct. Actually, um, Scuzz, those guys are like the, the straight up hardcore like punk rock kids. Yeah. Um, I can't think of the character's name, but the guy who's dressing up looking like a nerd, he's a mod. So he's essentially like kind of just like, you know, more of a trendy kind of punk dude. He's not all about that kind of punk, but he's about punk. Um, Spider, he's just like, like everybody, they've always got their got their one black friend that just like, you know, never fits in anywhere. And so it's like, well, why don't I just hang out with a bunch of other people that don't fit in anywhere else? And I mean, he's great. I love him. Like he's like a voice of reason when everybody else is freaking the fuck out. He's like, yo, you gotta figure this shit out. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a very near and dear character with my heart. Tina, I think, is the only one that doesn't really like fit with the whole crew. Um, because she is just so vanilla and she's so nice and so sweet and she's only there because of Freddie. Yeah. It's the only reason why she's there, but that she kind of balances everything out. True. True. It's a good eclectic group, you know, for a horror movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So when the zombies do first attack the, uh, the warehouse you've got that yellow zombie that it just looks like a at first i thought it was like a mannequin with a bald cap and then just like they cut its head off and it just keeps moving around and like knocks all the shelves down. <laughs> and they were you know they're freaking i thought if you destroyed the brain they die and like well clearly they don't and freddie says my favorite line in the movie you mean the movie lied <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and and that's and that's another way that they're like like Dan O'Bannon like even said he was like I want to separate my movie from Romero's zombie movie like I don't want it to be the same thing I don't want it to be like Dawn of the Dead or anything like that I want this to be different and that's why he 
threw down the gauntlet essentially and said, yeah, Night of the Living Dead really happened, but it didn't happen the way you think it happened. And oh, by the way, we got one of those tanks here. So yeah, like that whole exchange is just rapid fire and it's so funny. Like, and it's very cringeworthy when like Bert is taking the bone saw on. He's like sawing off the zombie's head and just like hearing the crunch and all this shit. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, it's just so fucking raw and gross. And it's like, God damn. Like, ah. And then you end up seeing the end result and they bring him over to Ernie. And then they have that exchange. <laughs> fucking Bert and Ernie. Fucking, hey, Ernie, we're going to burn this stuff. Well, what's in the bags? <laughs> Rabid weasels. <laughs> like, he's saying that, like, would you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> it's just so fucking ridiculous. And, like, it's a little bit of dramatic irony because you, we as the audience know that there's not fucking rabid weasels in there, dude. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and it adds another layer to it because at that point, you don't know that they're going to be able to succeed at this. We think they might be able to. I mean, you think like, they're going to fucking burn them. Yeah, sure. Fucking go away. No, just going to make it worse. This movie is just a series of bad decisions (laughs) making shit progressively worse to where by the end of it, you're just like, oh man, we just got to nuke the fucking problem. Well, there's so much like in that scene where, I love Ernie's reactions. Like, you can't burn these animals. That's cruel. And Bert's just like, you just got to trust me on this. <laughs> which, which, if you think about it, that's funny too. Coming from a fucking Nazi. You can't burn animals. That's wrong. Holy shit. <laughs> this is why I'm telling you this movie is so fucking good. It, it, it is. It, it's just, it's pure comedy gold. Because like when you really start to dig into it and listen and like think about where these fucking words are coming from, you're like, no, the Nazi didn't just is he a PETA person? What the fuck? Like, come on, man. I love how casually everybody just accepts the zombies in this movie. Like when Bert tells him, like, all right, look, it's not weasels in the bags. <laughs> and he opens it up and it's a fucking arm, and Ernie's just like shit (laughs) that's great they throw him in the oven and fuck up the atmosphere and just resurrect all of these monsters uh and then you know we get 45 graves party time which i knew about years before i knew about this movie i've i've known about that i've i've liked this song for a long time and it's awesome that this was where it came from uh bitchin song i don't know if you ever played uh there was a call of duty zombie map called uh, call of the dead where uh it was sarah michelle geller danny trejo robert england and michael rooker were actors making a zombie movie and zombies really attacked and you got to play as them but that's the first time i ever heard this song so cool that like you know paying homage to the greats that kind of thing and it's just a it's just a badass party song. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't know about that. Um, I'm not a big Call of Duty person. I'm not um, either, but I played that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I could definitely get down for that. Um, I mean, the soundtrack, like 
soundtrack's got 45 grave it's got the cramps are one of my all-time ones ever 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 um the damned um tsol like they're just they're just all of these bands that are in here and once once dan o'bannon knew like that's where his characters were going to be like he was he was trying to get this kind of music put in there he wanted it to be as like authentic as possible um unfortunately when they re-released it um they couldn't get the damned to agree to having their song put back in there so like when they a when they released the soundtrack it didn't have the damned on there and i think unless you get like got like some early pressing of it from the 80s or whatever chances are you don't have that on there um which is crazy to me like i, I can't imagine the damned would not want to get in on that um but again it's just one of those things like it's it was very uh influential to me um i think that was one of the first times i heard the cramps and i was i was in love um i i listen a lot to the last podcast on the left and one of the uh creators uh this guy marcus parks he has a music history podcast called no dogs in space and he and his wife carolina do it and they did a whole like first season on the history of punk rock and one of the bands covered was the cramps so i got like a deep dive into the cramps and i appreciate them that much more um matter of fact a couple of like last weekend or weekend before that i was playing the soundtrack and my kids actually got up and danced with me when Surf and Dead came on. So I feel like I'm doing something right if my kids are dancing to cramps and they're not even teenagers yet. So it's a proud dad. Oh, that's great, man. That's, I'm happy for you. That's awesome. Uh, let's talk about the Tar Man. So he's kind of the face of this movie. Uh, awesome makeup effects on that on that thing. It's the goofy, like googly eyes and the big mouth. It's it looks like a, a parody of a zombie, but it works. Oh, and totally. I don't really know why it works, but it does. I, I think it works because it's so outlandish. And um, the actor, uh, his name is Alan Troutman, I believe. Um, he had a very, um, very interesting approach to how he played it and he it just i think the way he moves and the way he looks like his skin has just been like turned into goo and he's just falling apart with every step and it's just like it just looks like he could crumble at any moment but he could still chomp fucking head off that to me is absolutely terrifying not to mention the fact that you see a fucking walking skeleton essentially with full blown eyeballs <laughs> coming after you. Like I'm going to shit my pants. Um, Tony Gardner was one of the effects artists working on that. And he went on to um, work with Don Mancini in a lot of the child's play movies. So this got his career started um, really early. I think he was only in his twenties when he was doing this. 
So, um, yeah, this this movie launched some careers uh, when you think about it. The fact that Tommy Jarvis was in this movie, um, you know, Linnea Quigley becoming a bona fide 80s scream queen out of this. Um, there's just a lot of people that are there that, you know, came from this movie. So it definitely, definitely earns its respect for that. For me, for sure. Right on. Um, I love the transformation of Frank and Freddie and how gradual that is. But also when the paramedics show up and are like, uh, you have no, no blood pressure, no pulse, no heartbeat. Uh, you're dead somehow. <laughs> and they're just like, what? We're dead. <laughs> it's, it reminded me very much of death becomes her when Meryl Streep goes to the doctor's office and Sydney Pollock's like, uh, you, you don't have a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> just, I love little bits like that. It's a cool idea that you don't see very often of just a doctor analyzing a dead person and not realizing it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the fact that, you know, uh, Tom Matthews approach being like full method, he's just absorbing himself into that. Um, Slowly, you know, he's becoming frozen with rigor mortis and all of these things. Um, He has the benefit of, doing this role twice um he and james karen were in return of the living dead part two essentially playing their same characters um and yeah when, when we get to talk about that i'll i'll talk about how much I, I i i don't like saying i hate movies but that movie really gets under my skin just because of how lazy it is Yeah, they're, I love them. They try to move them and they just start screaming. And then when Freddie just gets up and it's like, I love you. You have to let me eat your brain. <laughs> like, it's a great over-the-top delivery. And knowing that he was method just makes that even better. <laughs> yeah, totally. No. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but his bomber jacket on it says, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got that in my trivia coming up. <laughs> that's That's hilarious. And then we come to a pretty sad, touching moment where Frank cremates himself. I mean, holy shit, like takes his wedding ring off, like prays briefly, and then just hucks himself into the fucking oven. Yeah, that was, uh, that was all James Karen. He, uh, he came to Dan O'Bannon with that. Um, credit to Dan O'Bannon for letting him go for it. Um, again, kind of showing you like, these characters do have not all of them, but some of them have like really good arcs in them. And Frank, you know, not wanting to come back like that, it's a uh, it's a very uh, noble way to die. Very samurai of him to take his own life, so he doesn't come back and go after his wife and chomp on her and his kids. I love when they finally do decide to call the army. The colonel's like, why didn't you just call this number immediately? Like it says in case of emergency, right on the barrel. <laughs> why didn't you just call the number? I love Bird is like, well, I'll lose my business. Zombie apocalypse. And he's like, oh, I don't want to lose my business. <laughs> hey, man. That's, that 
that that just shows somebody who's more concerned about covering his own ass than saving the whole world. And I mean, how many people have we known that have been like that? How many bosses have we had that cared more about what was going to happen to them than what was going to happen to you? So, All that matters is the bottom line, regardless of the situation. Yeah, yeah. I'm not getting my ass in trouble. Fuck you. I'll fire you first. Fuck you. And then the solution is they just fucking nuke the town. Like, what? They just yeah, blew up Louisville. And it still didn't work. <laughs> no, they just killed. They just no. made more zombies. Well, yeah. And because they still have more barrels. Duh. It's, yeah, it's a wild ride. Um, I had some issues with it, but, you know, I, it's just the way I watch movies. I, I, I haven't, you know, I'm narrative driven. I would, I was, I was hoping it was, it would be gorier. That's a big one. I was looking, I was hoping for some like really brutal zombie carnage. And I feel like I didn't get as much as I wanted. Uh, I, uh, I thought the ending was kind of abrupt. Uh, just nuke it and the movie's over. Uh, and I thought the characters, some of them didn't really stand out that much, but the more we talked about it, the more I started to kind of second uh, guess that one. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'll watch yeah, it. Again. I, I, oh, yeah. Well, look, and again, I don't know if you're paying attention, but this should also be on your 4th of July list of movies to watch with Jaws because. The day everything starts is July 3rd. The morning the bomb drops is the 4th of July. There you go. I didn't notice that. That's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I, I, try to, I try to watch that in Jaws every year. Just, uh, you know, got to keep the holidays popping with the horror movies, you know? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of which, uh, we're recording this on February 2nd, and I didn't watch Groundhog Day today. Damn it. Oh, I didn't either. Well, whatever. No, I, I try to do that every year. I love Groundhog Day. I, look, I haven't actually seen that movie in a long time. Um, and I think, like, I think that was the first time I watched a movie, and I was like, Bill Murray's not funny the whole time. <laughs> He's not. But... I've watched it, you know, as I got older, because I mean, I went and saw it when I was a kid. Yeah. When it first came out, and then I saw it later on when I when I was older. I was like, this movie's fucking hilarious. Like this movie, it it has no right being as funny and dark as it is. Yeah. Because I I don't know that anybody else but Bill Murray could have done that. Maybe John Cusack, but that's about it. And and I and I only think of John Cusack because I think of Better Off Dead and how he's like trying to like kill himself and that shit. Groundhog Day has one of the funniest lines in a movie, in my opinion. It's uh, like the third or fourth day that Bill Murray's gone through the cycle. And he goes to the, to the bar and he's talking to those two guys. And he said, he says, what would you do if there was no tomorrow and nothing you did mattered? And one of the trucker guys goes, wow, that about sums it up for me. <laughs> I always love that. They just look so despondent. They're just staring into their beers like, yeah, pretty much. Oh, good old ground. Fuck, I thought I was sad. <laughs> Here's some filmgasm facts. Number one, on the back of Freddy's jacket in the theatrical version, the words fuck you are displayed. 
After realizing that the shot could not be used in case it was ever shown on TV, a second jacket was made that says television version and can be seen in the TV version of the movie. So his jacket just says television version. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) That's just just another way of saying fuck you. (laughs) Number two, Dinah Cancer, the lead singer of the punk band 45 Grave, whose macabre song Party Time is memorably used in Return of the Living Dead, agreed to become a model for the special effects crew of Fright Night Part 2, who needed a girl smaller than the film star Julie Carmen to create the right body mold for the monstrous vampire bat creature that Carmen turns into. The crew also found Dinah's unusual last name interesting and a small sign that she's the right girl for the job. So the lead singer of 45 Grave was a model for Fright Night 2. I thought that was cool. I did not know that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Number three. I actually, I actually bought. Hold on, little aside. Yeah. I bought Fright Night Two from a website that um, will essentially like send you a sort of bona fide copy of it because um, Fright Night Two is out of print. Yeah. Um, but I got it on Blu-ray, so I'll uh, I'll point you in, in in the direction of that because I haven't watched it forever, and I found this website from another podcast shit so i'll send that to you i got to see it uh through a youtube uh version like somebody uploaded it to youtube in in hd and i watched it and i thought it was terrible (laughs) oh no it is it's totally terrible but it's like it's just one of those things where you're just like why could like why couldn't they just get this right like they have the whole template why couldn't you get this right yeah it's a damn shame it really is a damn shame and yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Why not? One of those kind of novelty movies that maybe eight people have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Number three, Return of the Living Dead invented the popularized notion in the public conscious of zombies eating specifically brains as opposed to simply flesh and that zombies grown brains as they walk. It is also the first film to ever show zombies being able to run as well as being able to speak and being in possession of more than base animal instincts. It is a popular misconception that George Romero invented this specific trait as part of his Night of the Living Dead series, though he has emphasized it was not his idea. So yeah, this film is the, a pretty uh, big pioneer for zombie, uh, for the zombie subgenre, and that's pretty cool. So let's look at the sequels. First up, 1988's Return of the Living Dead 2. Some kids unearth the barrels, accidentally revive the dead again. James Karen, Tom Matthews, and Jonathan Terry return. And you said you have some issues with this one. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about it, it is essentially a repackaged version of Return of the Living Dead. Ah. James Karen and uh, Tom Matthews play grave robbers. And uh, James Karen is essentially showing Tom Matthews around on his first night at the job. God. <laughs> Just fucking terrible ass shit. And they both get bit, come under the, you know, are slowly turning into zombies throughout the whole movie, going through the whole same thing again. Um, the difference is there are kids this time that are kind of like the the main focus and it's really not even like a bunch of kids like you have the punk kids in return of the living dead um you did have a young bobby briggs in 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 it 
Um, he plays a cable uh, repair man who is coming to put in um, the cable for these uh, family that's just moving in, his brother and sister that are like kind of like the main characters in the movie. Um, some of the zombie design is cool, um, but the, the movie overall is just not good. It's just, I think one of the, the only parts that are, that's funny to me and enjoyable about it is there's a scene where zombies are breaking into this kid's house and uh, Bobby Briggs is fighting with one of them. They're on the floor. The TV gets turned on and it's a fucking 80 straight up Jasper size fucking program on TV and the zombie dude on the floor like stops staring at the fucking this lady's ass going up and down and all the zombies are transfixed by it so that all, all the humans just sneak out that to me is like the funniest part of the whole movie um i tried to watch it again the other night and i was like man this movie pisses me off so much because it's just so lazy and that is all the fault of the producer tom fox he wanted to make a sequel because the first one was profitable and he just he just he just got lazy um the director tried the best he could to write a good script um, it just, it was just a rehash of the first movie. It's terrible. Fucking Ugh. garbage. I just, I, I, I don't like it. And it's just, it's like, you just, you watch it and you're just like, it's like thinking about Friday Night 2. You're just like, damn it. You had the blueprint. Why did you fuck this up? How could you fuck this up? That sucks. Yeah. I hate when it's just, you know, the same damn movie with a different label. It's the worst kind of sequel. Yeah. Next, we have 1993's Return of the Living Dead 3. A teenager uses the army chemical to resurrect his recently deceased girlfriend with disastrous results. What, what's going on with this one? So this one was written and directed by Brian Usna, who uh, uh, was the genius on uh, getting Stuart Gordon into the animator. Um, Brian Usna also directed Society, which... I don't know if you've heard about that movie. Um, it is a really weird ass movie. Um, doesn't really start messing with you until the very end, but you're always kind of aware that something's not right about what that movie's what's going on in that movie. Um, check it out sometime, and then let me know how you feel about the finale. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> it's just one of those things. Like once you see it, it never leaves your brain. And you may or may not hate me for making you watch it. <laughs> um, I'll put it to you like this. This movie gave me a lot of confused boners when I was younger. Um, it came on HBO and Cinemax a lot. And, and I would stay up late, you know, watching whatever I could. Um, this movie came along. It's got a lot more of like a love story angle between it because of the kid whose dad. Um, is heading up the art project, trying to create these, these super soldiers. And um, his girlfriend comes back and she finds out um, that, you know, she's starting to crave brains and how she curbs those cravings is to uh, inflict pain on her uh, in the form of like ever increasing body, like the, the most outlandish body modifications you can think of. Um, Look up the poster art for it, and you'll see her final form. You're like, what the fuck? But, I mean, she is a very beautiful woman. Um, her name is Mindy Clark. 
and she's very attractive and like she just slowly keeps going through that transformation by the end of it she can't inflict any more pain on herself she has to kill um yeah it's uh something else it's very something um the other two movies sci-fi channel picked them up and produced them and they're just they're sequels in name only they're ah. fucking god awful movies terrible terrible ass movies i've the, the fact that they put them out like back to back lets you know that they didn't get anything in the way of actually you know that they're putting out they're just taking the name and slapping some zombies in there and you're like oh we're living dead Oh, that sucks. So Necropolis and Rave to the Grave are just garbage. Hot garbage. Yeah, I kind of figured they looked leagues worse, and that's saying something. <laughs> um, I gave Return of the Living Dead a seven. Uh, it's pretty entertaining. I did expect a lot more gore. I, I like the wacky shit. The ending's a little abrupt, and I thought the characters were fairly forgettable, but I'm, I'm warming up to that one. Yeah, I mean, once you start thinking about like all the gags in there and like all the characters, you, you start to really realize Dan O'Bannon knew what he was doing when, when he was writing this thing. Um, something we didn't touch on that I want to uh, want to bring to your attention um, to kind of round out like just how funny this movie is um, when Freddie and Frank are in, in the office and they're talking to each other like. And again, one of my other favorite lines in this is like when Freddie's talking back to Frank, and he's like, "You're watch your mouth. You like this job?" He's like, "Like this job?" Like, there's an eye chart in Bert's office, and the eye chart reads, "Bert is a slave driver and a cheap bastard, and is going bald too." Ha ha. <laughs> Damn. I don't that's... know how many times I had to pause that movie to read that. And I'm just like, oh, is that it? Because you're like, I'm watching it. I'm looking, does that say? Does that say something? Oh, shit, it says something. And then you read it and you're like, okay, okay. Like, who put that there? Somebody had to have done that, you know? Um, that just shows how smart that this movie is. And it's it's always going to be, you know, one of my favorites. It's a, it's a comfort food movie. Um, right up there with some of my favorite trauma flicks in the fact that I can turn it on whenever and I will always enjoy it. Um, one of the, uh, one of the special features on the DVD I have is a uh, subtitle track for the zombies. So that every time the zombies are moaning and groaning and saying brains, guess what it says in the subtitles? What? Brains. That's so stupid, but so brilliant at the same time. It's great. It's great. It's <laughs> just like little touches like that. It's just why I love this movie much. Um, the documentary I watched, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's called More Brains, of course. Um, and it's really, really good. Um, check it out. Uh, it was of the Shout Factory release of this movie. Um, regrettably, I didn't get my hands on it. It's out of print now. And it is retarded expensive um, if you're trying to hunt it down. Um, good luck to you. And hopefully somebody else will get their hands on it at some point. 
they can put it out again. Um, but yeah, as, as far as like my rating of it, it's a nine or 10. I think I wrote a nine on my review. Yeah. Um, I could, I could easily put that in my hall of tens just because it, it, it means a lot to me for many different reasons. Um, the music, um, the fact that like it, it meshes well with my sense of humor. And like I told you, like when you watch this, like if you don't think of me when you watch this movie, it's like, what am I doing wrong? Like this, this is everything I love about about horror movies and movies in general. You know, don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, don't commit the biggest crime, and you know, not you know, have fun. Um, don't be boring. This movie is anything but boring. So yeah, that's true. Awesome. Well, that's all for this week, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. And thank you, Josh, for being here today, bringing this film to my attention. Oh, yeah. Hey, happy to be here. Um, also, um, happy birthday to George Romero. His birthday will be on the 4th of February. So, you know, this episode's coming out tomorrow. Um, but yeah, happy birthday to George Romero. Uh, he, I have no idea where I would be in my movie loving experience if I didn't have him around so yeah gotta gotta show some love for one of the one of the best directors in cinema history and one of the best American storytellers ever absolutely man I we've yet to I did creep show on my own early on in the show and then Austin and I did the dark half but that's it for Romero we've yet to tackle the dead movies uh well <laughs> I'm hey man, I'm ready when you are. Oh yeah. Beautiful. Next week goes back to Julie as we discuss the 1987 romantic thriller Fatal Attraction, starring Michael Douglas as a cheating husband and Glenn Close as the psycho he sleeps with. One of the few horror flicks in history to get serious Oscar attention and a first time watch for Julie. Sure to be a fun episode. It's been a long time since I saw Fatal Attraction. That'll be that'll be a blast. <laughs> Psycho host beast. Don't miss our look into Boogie Nights on Oscar Sunday and another sneak preview on Monday. Until then, don't resurrect the dead with weird army chemicals and keep watching movies. Mm-hmm.